This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. Do not stand at my grave and weep. Poem by Mary Elizabeth Fry. Valeria Tellez interviews Norman E. Rosenthal, the author of Poetry Rx, How 50 Inspiring Poems Can Heal and Bring Joy to Your Life. It was chosen by the New York Times as a top wellness book of 2021. Poetry Rx is also on the Poets List 2021 Poetry Wrap, Norman E. Rosenthal, MD, is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Georgetown Medical School and was the psychiatrist who first described seasonal affective disorder and pioneered the use of light in its treatment during his 20 years at the National Institute of Mental Health. He has researched other innovative psychiatric treatments and is the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, Transcendence, Healing and Transformation Through Transcendental Meditation, and the national bestseller, Supermind, He currently maintains a private clinical and coaching practice in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. His work has earned him national and international attention in the world of psychiatry and psychology, as well as in the media. Meet Norman at normanrosenthal.com. Here's the interview with Norman E. Rosenthal. In your own words, who is Norman E. Rosenthal? You know, I think each of us is so many different people wrapped into one. So at one level, I am a husband, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. Uh, At another level, I'm a doctor, I have patients, I have friends. Uh, I like to think of myself as creative, so I write I enjoy making unexpected connections. Uh, I've written books, I've written papers, I've done research. Uh, One of the pieces of research I'm most proud of is the description of seasonal affective disorder and the development of light therapy as a treatment. But I've also engaged in other forms of practice and treatment like transcendental meditation, And now uh, poetry, which has been a lifelong joy for me, 
I am looking at in terms of can it be helpful to people and can I use it to be helpful to people along with, you know, somebody said, oh, are you going to prescribe poetry? I said, I've been a psychiatrist for more than 40 years. I prescribe medicine. I prescribe therapy. I prescribe exercise and meditation and diet. And yes, when it's appropriate, I will also prescribe poetry. I love that idea. And I have a lot of questions for you about your book, Poetry Rx, How 50 Inspiring Poems Can Heal and Bring Joy to Your Life. Do you consider what you do the purpose of your life or something different? You know, I don't think we just have one purpose in our lives. I think one purpose is to be a good person to leave the world a little bit of a better place than we found it. Another purpose is to take care of the people we've brought into the world. Uh, Another purpose is to find our dharma or our mission, one of which has been to be a healer. That's a purpose. So all of these are different purposes. And I think the wonderful thing about our lives today and our lives in this particular country is that we have the opportunity to exercise these different purposes and uh, accomplish them. And I think that's a, a really tremendous privilege. Not everybody in the world can do that. They're kind of stuck in their ruts. And I don't think we have to be here. I have a, those initial questions, the warm-up questions, and I'm going to ask you this one. What is your other word for poetry? Poetry is music in words. Somebody said they tried to define poetry, and somebody said poetry is simply the most beautiful way of saying something. Mm. And that's about as good a definition as I could find. Of course, it doesn't have to rhyme. It doesn't have to have a meter. (laughs) But it has to have something that makes it special, beautiful, very concise. You know, you're not going to... I mean, I guess there are poems hundreds of pages long, but to me and in my book, I've chosen poems that are rather short, that within five minutes can give you something that you can take away with you and that's special. Is there something about poetry that reminds us of nature? I think I recall reading your book, a passage where you say that poetry and nature, they are somehow connected. Well, one section of my book is poems about nature. And what poets have been able to do is they've been looking, they've been able to look at a natural setting and draw very critical insights that a regular person might not be able to. If you take Robert Frost in his famous Road Less Traveled By, or The Road Not Taken is what it's really called, He comes to this fork in a yellow wood, and from a simple fork in the wood, he generates one of the most famous poems of the last century and is all about making a choice, which we do all the time and have to do all the time in our daily lives. So so a a poet will see a little thing in nature or a big thing in nature and will derive a central message. A poem that recently I've been saying a lot to myself is by a poet you and I discussed before we came on air, Emily Dickinson. And she was a masterful observer. 
And, you know, you asked me what my purpose in life is. There's a small poem that I've been saying to myself that's Emily Dickinson and also based on her observations of nature. She says, if I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. If I can ease one life the aching or cool one pain or help one fainting robin unto his nest again, I shall not live in vain. But she sees this little bird, this little robin, she helps him into his nest, and she thinks this little gesture is really symbolic of everything I want to do with my life in order not to have the feeling that I have lived in vain. I want to be of help. I want to be of service. And so that's a poet seeing the smallest little thing that somebody would just kick the, the robin to the side or step over it or whatever. But not only does she pick the robin up and put him back in his nest, but she sees that as somehow an essential representation of what her mission is on earth. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I love those simple insights that have huge impacts in our lives, in our day-to-day, moment-to-moment lives. I was thinking about poetry earlier today as something that, like when I think about nature, it really kind of came to me that they are very similar in a way, depending on where you're at, of course, and if you're able to understand and connect with the poem, of course. But it seems to transcend the intellect, bypass the intellect and speak directly to the heart, to the soul of human beings. It seems to me, is that something that you relate to in a way? Yes and no. I think that great poets understand that we appreciate and experience our worlds through both the intellect and the emotions, and that somehow it's managing to let these two parts of our psyche come into harmony with each other. Mm. That is part of leading a successful life. Uh, I have have a wonderful poem, for example, in the book by Edna St. Vincent Millay, a really great sonneteer, and it's called Pity Me Not, with one of my patients that brought it to my attention. Oh my God, Norma, I have to interrupt you for just a moment. Isn't it funny you just mentioned Emily? That was one of the poems that kind of came to me today to talk about it. And then Edna St. Vincent Millet too, and you just mm-hmm. mentioned her. How interesting. Okay, please continue. <laughs> Rock, she was so amazing and One of my um, patients actually brought her poem to my attention. Um, I'm just finding it here. Yeah, Beth, right? I think the name, her name was. That is correct. I I remember. So so I'll, I'll read it to you if I may. Yes, please, please. Pity me not because the light of day at close of day no longer walks the sky. Pity me not for beauties passed away from field and thicket as the year goes by. Pity me not the waning of the moon, nor that the ebbing tide goes out to sea, nor that a man's desire is hushed so soon and you no longer look with love on me. This have I known always. Love is no more than the wide blossom which the wind sails, than the great tide that treads the shifting shore, 
strewing fresh wreckage gathered in the gales. Pity me that the heart is slow to learn what the swift mind beholds at every turn. So here she's not asking for pity for all the ordinary things that afflict regular people. You know, the passing of the seasons, the fading of the light, the changing of the tides. Everybody has that. Even love disappearing is part of life. But she doesn't ask for special pity on any of those accounts. What she does ask for pity about is that her heart is slow to learn what the swift mind beholds at every turn. She sees herself as very smart, very sharp, but her heart is slow to learn that lesson. So here is a beautiful poem that speaks to the heart, but at the same time praises the mind. I want my heart to come in line with my mind so that I don't keep having the pain of making bad choices in my love life. That's another powerful message because some of us, like myself, I love the idea that I can follow the heart and kind of be kind as much as I can and live from that place of authenticity so I can be myself and I can say and do the things I want to do from the heart. But that's so true. Like I need the mind to, in order to guide the desires of the heart into existence. It's not just one. I love the word you use, the harmony. It's that balance between the mind and the heart. Mm. Is that what you call the wise mind? You mentioned that term uh, within the takeaways. Yes, definitely. You know, the wise mind is it's a combination between the intellectual mind and the emotional mind. It's, it's a way of blending, you know. I, you know, I feel like I love this person, but she's irresponsible, you know. She wouldn't look after my babies properly. You know, she, she just can't be depended on, but she's, she's gorgeous and she's so sweet. But that's not going to be enough to make a good life for the two of us. So there is a, a sort of feeling and a thinking and a bringing it together in terms of making a decision that's right for a person for their life going forward. That's the wise mind. I wish you had called that the wise heart <laughs> in a way, <laughs> but uh, that's beautifully explained the way you do. Yeah, that makes sense. And within those takeaways for the poem, Pity me not because the light of day. You also say, the first one, recognize and learn to avoid repetitive behaviors. Mm -hmm. This is such a powerful message to hear. It's a challenge to put this into practice because it seems like there's something about the subconscious mind that's always trying to make everything repetitive, <laughs> try automatic. So how do we learn to do that? What are some of the your suggestions, Norm? Sometimes you just have to have have enough pain. Ah, um, yeah. You know, you yeah. see it with addiction mm. all the time. So true. You see it with addiction all the time. You know, I love this thing to which I'm addicted, which could be a drug, it could be a person, it could be some behavior like gambling or eating. I love it, I love it, I love it. I can't live without it, I can't live without it. Well, if somebody can engage you in a conversation and say, okay, for how long can't you live without it? Then already 
it interrupts the automaticity of the thinking, you know? Uh, well, I, I, could, you live, could you live without it for five minutes? Well, yeah, five minutes, I could live without anything. How about an hour? Well, that's pushing it a little. Would we try that? You, you know what I'm saying? You are gently helping that person engage her or his mind in a repetitive behavior that is self-destructive. That makes sense to me. Would meditation help, Norm? You know, I think meditation is hugely helpful because there are different kinds of meditation. But when I meditate, I go into a really pleasant place and I can sit there for a while and allow myself to be with myself. And I think that a lot of times addictions are difficulty being with oneself. You know, whether it's the television or whether it's a video game or a mobile app or whatever it is, we're craving that connection with something or somebody, and we don't really always use our good judgment. But what meditation helps you do is to say, you know, you can be by yourself and it can be really pleasant and here's how you do it and try it. And and so I have and I do meditate twice a day, pretty much without fail. Um, and it has been an incredible stabilizing internal force for me. What is the first step for those who never meditated before? Do we set an intention? Do we just sit there and wait for something to happen, an insight to come? Do we watch our thoughts? You need to know that there are a number of different kinds of meditations. There's mindfulness where you're encouraged to keep your mind on a certain thing. It could be a an image or it could be a thought. It could be a thought of loving kindness or whatever. And if your mind strays, you're encouraged to bring it back. Could be your breath. Uh, these are all different kinds of meditation and they may lead to different kinds of feelings and different brain changes. The one that I know the most about, because I happen to have done it uh, for years now, is a mantra-based meditation where I've been taught a certain mantra and I've been taught how to use it. And there's a really wide support network that backs up the teaching. And I sit down twice a day and I let that mantra come to me very easily, very effortlessly. And what happens is I slip into this place, which is called the transcendent. It's kind of consciousness. And it turns out to be very relaxing and very creative. Oftentimes when I come out of it, um, I feel almost like I've had a mental bath, if you want. Uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, I'm so fresh and ready to get on with whatever it is I need to do. So it's very pleasant. And um, these are all forms of meditation. And you don't just meditate for the experience of meditation. You meditate because of what it does for you when you're not meditating. It helps you live your life very richly and fully, and your consciousness is very crisply and sharply developed. Mm. And I know that in my own life, it's made a huge difference to my creativity and to my productivity. Right. Yeah, I feel the same way. It is a powerful practice. You mentioned the word consciousness in the book you did as well. How would you describe consciousness, Norm? 
Well, I think the simplest way is it's a state of being uh, in one's mind. So consciousness can be very focused on something or consciousness can be very freewheeling, uh, like what we were just describing. It's, it's the subjective state of whatever is going on in your mind at a certain time. It is the mind, but it's not the mind at the same time. It's not the content. It's an aspect of, of the mind. Aspect of the mind, right. And you also mentioned mantra. Of course, I heard it before and I kind of know what it is. But just for clarity, what is the difference between a mantra and an affirmation? Do we create our own mantras or this is given to us? A mantra is really a sound that ideally doesn't have a meaning. So if you're mantra was cheeseburger, <laughs> yeah. you, you, oh, wow. you would all of a sudden, <laughs> oh, I didn't have lunch or I need to, you know. So it's not going to be something that has a meaning. It's, it's got no meaning. Now, an affirmation's got a meaning. I can do it. Uh, I am good enough. That's an affirmation. And nothing wrong with saying affirmations, especially if they're true, but it's not a mantra. A chant is not necessarily a mantra because a chant is something you say out aloud and a mantra is something you think. So those are some of the simplistic differences I see between those different concepts. I actually didn't know that mantras, they don't have meanings. It's not clear to the mind, to the intellectual mind. You know, there, there is a, a kind of a meditation called loving kindness meditation. Yes, yeah. Where somebody might sit there and say to themselves, somebody will come to mind. Let's say I'm sitting, uh, meditating, and Valeria comes through my mind. And I would say, may she be at peace, may no harm come to her. And then my mind will pass on to somebody else. And then maybe I'll think of somebody whom I really don't like, some friend who's not handled, treated me very well, say Joe. And I would say, may he be at peace, may no harm come to him. So basically, we're engaged in an exercise that is clearing us of resentments, clearing us of angry feelings, and wishing kindness to people who are friends or not friends, that's a different kind of thing altogether. But when I'm sitting and I'm thinking of a mantra, Joe might come into my mind and I might say, he's had a hard life. Be slow to judge him. It could come up spontaneously, but I wouldn't be directing my mind to do that. I would let my mind go where it wanted. So you see the subtle but important differences between different kinds of meditation. It sounds very spiritual to me, the way you speak. I probably have asked you in our first interview, but I'll ask you again. Do you have a spiritual belief system or um, practice? It's meditation, your practice, or perhaps poetry? Well, a belief system... Uh, you know, it depends what you mean by belief system. I mean, I believe in science. I'm a scientist by training. I believe that the, the universe is governed by certain laws. Uh, and then I have a certain set of moral beliefs. I believe that people should be good to one another. I believe that 
you should avoid doing harm unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, you know, I don't take it to the point of um, ahimsa, which is, of course, the, the the certain people who sweep in front of themselves so they don't even tread on a, a one of these tiny little organisms. That's not me, but I'm certainly not going to hurt anybody unconsciously, or I'm even going to tread where I, you know, if there's a snail in my path, I'll step over the snail. I'm not going to hurt or kill somebody, you, you know, gratuitously. So these, you could call this a belief system. I try to uh, help people when I can. And um, so, yes, that's a belief system. Do I believe in a uh, particular cosmology, how the universe was created, who we need to propitiate in order to prevent ill things from happening to us from who knows where? No, I don't believe that sort of thing. So I think we all craft a kind of belief system that fits our mm. sense of what the universe is all about. What inspired you to become a psychiatrist? You know, I have always been fascinated by the human mind. And I always was interested in both the arts and the sciences. And uh, psychiatry seemed to be a point of junction between those two. And in a strange way, this book, Poetry Rx, is a combination of science and art. Because poetry is, is a high art, but the lessons that I am taking out of the poems really come from my experience uh, as a clinician and my knowledge of how the brain works. So I've tried to work at the at the junction between the mind and the body, and psychiatry seems to be that place. Another question I have. In your book, you mentioned the word joy. You include that word. Mm -hmm. How is joy different from happiness? Do you see a difference? And if you do, how would you describe the feeling of joy? Well, you know, I'm, I'm interested because I know that your blog is fit for joy. <laughs> yes, yeah. And... <laughs> And I like that because there's an element of action in joy. You know, when you when you get fit, you get joy. Joy is not just sitting there and feeling happy. Joy is feeling invigorated with happiness. Mm, so yeah. I think joy has a kind of kinetic quality to it. And that's why I like the juxtaposition of fit and joy. Because I think you need to get fit mentally and physically, in order to embrace joy, which is, is more passionate than just happiness. It's more directed than happiness. Frankly, I love the word joy. It's so short and it communicates so much. So true. Now you made me think about that. Like, what is that about joy? What does it come from? It seems like it It varies, right, Norm? We can all have different explanations, so we, we can describe that differently. For me, it seems like it comes from a place of, um, I would say, gratitude in a sense of almost like knowing, a kind of knowledge that this is fulfillment to be here in a human body. Now it's just, this is amazing. This is like magic <laughs> happening. So this feeling of that I call joy kind of, arises from that. And yeah, you're right. It kind of energizes and invigorates everything I do. It gives life to it at a different level 
than just being happy from having things. You know, I think the word you said that I resonated with more than anything else was amazing. How amazing it is to be alive, to feel joy, to have a connection with somebody right on the other side of the strange electronic device and and to say, you know, this is something that's really important for all of us to feel joy, to communicate joy, to bring joy to other people as well, like you do with your with your podcast and with your work. And that's what I try to do as well. It's almost like it's a choiceless action. That's what it feels to me, that I'm not really, of course, you can say that I'm choosing to do that, but it doesn't feel that way. That's kind of interesting. No, I, I really know that. And I also felt that since I've meditated, that a, long, a lot of things are happening through me. Mm, right. To buy me. It's like a force that comes through you and you let it out the best way you can as a way of being creative and being useful in the world and the universe. What are some of the obstacles to healing when it comes to mental health? Well, I think it's it's first and foremost what psychiatrists have called resistance, uh, that you're used to being how you are. And the idea of being any different is frightening sometimes. Let's say you are a person who's all alone in your apartment and you've got everything organized and you've got your favorite television shows and you know exactly what you like for dinner and exactly how much coffee you like at breakfast time and, you know, the dog needs to be walked and you've got all your routines nailed down, but you're lonely. And up the road, down the road, someone has moved in who may be a romantic interest. Maybe she or he would be good company. Maybe you'd have more fun. But I've got my routines and that would upset them. And maybe he or she would want to eat supper later. And maybe they would snore at night and I wouldn't sleep. <laughs> I'm being silly now. I'm uh, making yeah. story. But the resistance to change, I think, is a big impediment to finding happiness. And... We do so unconsciously, right, Norm? We do, because we like to kind of, you know, Newton's first law of motion is that a body stays in one place or moves at a steady uh, velocity unless there's another force acting on it. And so the default is equilibrium. And then anything that happens to that risks upsetting the equilibrium. But it also offers the hope of making things more fun or more lively or more joyful. The main intention and purpose of writing your book, did you set an intention for Poetry Rx? Uh, yes, there was a very clear intention. I wanted to communicate to others how powerful poetry could be to heal, inspire and bring joy to people's lives. That was my intention. And that I would pick 50 poems, many different from one another, illustrating different aspects of human existence and showing you how poetry can illuminate, enliven your world. And so that was my intention. 
Yeah, beautiful one. Do you remember your first experience with the healing power of poems? Well, I, I do really. Um, my first experience was when I was leaving South Africa and I was leaving behind my family. And I was so excited to be going to America and I had a wonderful opportunity to get an excellent residency in psychiatry in New York City, which of course is such an exciting place. And I had my wife and my little boy with me and the whole world was in front of me. And so it was very easy for me to forget who I was leaving behind, and not only who I was leaving behind, but how I felt about leaving them behind. And then I came upon a letter to my mother by Salvador Quasimodo. He was a uh, Nobel Prize winning poet. And it's all about this letter that this poet who's moved to the north of Italy from the south and now realizes that his mother is getting old and that he recalls his gratitude to her for letting him go, for letting him travel to the north, and also his sorrow that she's now becoming old and that he anticipates that she's not going to be around forever. And in fact, he, he speaks to death and asks death to spare her or not to take her away. He says, oh, gentle death. Do not touch the clock in the kitchen that ticks on the wall. All my childhood was passed away on the enamel of its dial, on those painted flowers. And those words sort of stuck with me. The kitchen clock where, which we looked up at so many times and all those meals and there was mom, you know. And, you know, in, in, with the genius of a poet, by using that kind of simple metaphor and that simple image, he manages to bring home to you, to me, to the reader, the sadness of the passing of time. So I read it again and again as I was leaving South Africa, and I didn't realize the reason for doing that. But the reason was that I, at the same time as I was excited, I was also beginning to grieve the departure of my family and my country of origin from my life. So that's an example of a poem that was very meaningful to me. Yeah, and that's interesting to see how poems, they it kind of gives us this opportunity to visualize reality in a, a completely different way. That's the powerful thing about poetry. Something that always catches my attention is how simple it can be and how sophisticated poems can be as well. It's really hard to understand for the first time. Like you said, you have to read, like I have to read certain poems many, many times to be able to, to get a message, perhaps one message that resonates with me. It's really true. It's because the words have been so cleverly layered on top of each other. It's like, you know, sometimes you'll eat a dish and you'll maybe you'll have a cake and it, you'll be a, be a chocolate cake and you'll bite into it. But then you'll taste the orange flavor underneath the chocolate. Mm, and then yeah. you'll get a little crispiness and that'll be like a meringue. It's a yeah. subtle cake, this one. 
that's the same with with the poem and so you you not only you learn new things but you you access new emotions in yourself like when i've read some of these poems in order to prepare for a presentation i think oh my god i've forgotten how gorgeous they are yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know it's yeah. like seeing an old lo- a picture of an old love of yours an old lover in in a photo album and say oh my god she was she was unbelievable you know no wonder i did those crazy things <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> oh, that's cute uh, and true <laughs> your clarity it's just really it's poetic <laughs> the truth is i mentioned that before in the first interview that I see you as an artist. I mean, you're a scientist, but a sci- and you mentioned that before too, the combination of science and art. Yeah, I was caught at the crossroads between science and art, and I've spent my life at those crossroads. I wanted to talk to you for a moment about death, and yesterday my husband's friend passed away. He got the phone call today, and then we were talking briefly about it, and it's interesting, we can't help it, but it felt like almost a weight on me. I wonder why this, something that is part of life, it weighs so much. It is such a heavy subject. And it is a subject that in the last part, I deal with that and I discuss it. And almost in the few minutes that we've got left, rather than to try and give you some nuggets about a subject that's so interesting and vast. Since I know you have a copy of the book, just read through some of those poems. I'll just read you the the titles. One is called, Should You Just Go For It? An Irish Airman Foresees His Death. That's somebody who knows he's going to die, but he's going to do it anyway. Or Should You Be Careful? That is uh, all about being careful, uh, you know, not like Icarus, who's, who, who challenged the sun, but living a more careful life. Then uh, we real cool, young pool players who are going to have a, an early death because they live recklessly. Or I know I'm getting old, the poet Wendell Berry, who realizes that slowly, slowly, slowly he's moving towards death, a different trajectory. Should you rage, Dylan Thomas telling his father, do not go gentle into that good night. He's advocating fighting, fighting death, which you might wonder, is there any point to that? Or is it time to go gently? We talked about this just before the show. Emily Dickinson, because I could not stop for death. What a beautiful poem. And then the last one, which has been so much comfort to so many people. It's got a wonderful backstory that I haven't got time to tell you, but it's Mary Elizabeth Fry, do not stand at my grave and weep. I don't know if I have two minutes to Oh, yes, please. Yes, yes, you do. (laughs) Yes. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. 
I am not there. I did not die. Mm, wow, that's a powerful one. Yeah. Uh, especially for those who, in a way, know that this is a, an endless journey, life itself, this amazing things. And uh, through meditation, we can see that. That's interesting. That that's another topic in another practice that you engage in. For another time, but not another lifetime. Let's do it in this lifetime. Yeah. Because I always love talking with you. I so appreciate your depth of questioning and the breadth of your interests. And of course, your vibrant personality. Thank you so much for having me on your show again. Thank you, Norm. Thank you a thousand times. I love your presence too. So my last question before we say goodbye is what three experiences you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die? I want you to experience love. And this can be love for anybody, man, woman, pet. But most of all, a love for yourself. I wish that you will have self-love and self-acceptance. I wish you joy. We can't have joy all the time because that's not the nature of joy, but I wish you some joy. And I wish you uh, a moment or many moments where you can look around and say, wow, I'm here at this amazing moment in the history of the universe where I'm on a planet with water, where I can walk out in the sun, where I can feel its rays on my skin, where I can swim in the water, where I can drink cool water, where I can just be free, even if it's only for a little while. Wow, it felt like a guided meditation, <laughs> almost everything you say. <laughs> Thank you, Norm. You're so generous and kind and loving. Thank you so much for your presence in oh, this reality. Joy. Bye-bye and thank you again. Thank you, Norm. We'll be in touch soon. Yes. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Norman E. Rosenthal and his work, please visit normanrosenthal.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.